see the size of that gap and understand where the limitations were, deploy all of the existing tools and all of those things together kind of were like, oh, wow, you can't do this in Tableau. This is crazy. Like, why can't you do this in a BI tool or whatever it is, right? Over that sort of period of realization, that really helped us figure out exactly what we wanted to go after before we kind of pulled the trigger. When we finally said, all right, you know what? We know enough here. It's time to build. Let's start building some software. Welcome to the Unleashing AI podcast, hosted by Pavel Fakanov. Join us as we speak with industry experts and explore the wonders of innovative, custom-built AI and how it can help grow your business, whilst also delving into the latest developments in the field of machine learning and artificial intelligence. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Unleashing AI podcast. I'm your host, Pavel Fakanov, and joining me today is Ryan Johnson, the co-founder and chief executive officer of Zenlytic. And Zenlytic is a cutting-edge business intelligence tool that is actually revolutionizing right now the field of data analytics and leveraging AI to provide data-driven insights for e-commerce and DTC businesses. And Ryan, we already talked a little bit about what you guys are doing. Super excited about having a conversation with you today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Pavel. It's a pleasure to be here and looking forward to the chat. Amazing, amazing. So let's just start quickly with your background. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, what you guys are doing in Zendetic, what you have done in the past, all of that? Yeah. So my personal background is kind of a crazy zigzag between technical and commercial. In VC, they call it crossing the table. I've been jumping back and forth across it my whole life. I'm originally from Canada. I was an engineer in Canada for a while, but pretty quickly I went and moved to the United Kingdom to go and do an MBA, study business. And I sort of became like an early employee at a venture capital firm there. I was a VC investor there for about six years before coming to America, coming to New York and sort of crossing the table there onto the entrepreneurship side. I did that actually first by going back and getting another master's degree. My second master's degree this time was in machine learning and met my co-founder while studying there in Boston. And we started actually a data science consultancy after my co-founder, Paul, and our CTO at Zenlytic carried me through that whole program. And shortly after that, we became these consultants and we helped all sorts of different organizations make sense of their data. While we were doing that, a real clear problem emerged around business intelligence. And we said, you know what, we're going full on product mode to solve this. And the rest is history. We founded Zenlytic. Zenlytic is now an 11-person organization. We've raised two rounds of funding. First one was led by Primary Ventures in New York. Second was led by Bain Capital Ventures. And what we do is basically a better self-serve BI tool. The problems that we saw when we were deploying BI tools is that technical users like myself or like Paul could use them very easily. And they're very, very powerful. But if you don't know SQL or Python or there's several other program languages that you need to know, if you don't know those, you're kind of stuck looking at sort of static dashboards. And we set out to improve that. Interestingly enough, we set out to improve that before the LLM revolution happened in late 2022. We sort of built just a better self-serve experience with some language capabilities when we met at grad school. That was the year that Attention is All You Need came out, which is sort of the seminal paper on the technical foundation for GPT. That came out, we've always been sort of studying and understood the early versions of those models as well. And those always had a place in Zenlytic. When the revolution happened, a lot of things changed in the product. I mean, first comprehension improved, things like that, of course. But the biggest thing it let us do is move from what I would call a search-based paradigm, where you type a question into a box and get it answered, you know, a data question, into a chat-based paradigm, where you can actually have a conversation with an AI chatbot. That's really important because when you have a conversation like that with a human, it rarely ends with a single question, right? You'll refine things, you'll clarify things, you'll drill into things, you'll adjust things, you'll go back and iterate. 
you know, it really takes chat to do that. And when those capabilities emerged, we just jumped on that really quickly, really rapidly started integrating all of these awesome new AI powers into the product. And result is the business intelligence platform, like a fully featured platform that has this embedded native AI data analyst that you can sort of answer your data questions in seconds with instead of waiting hours, days, weeks for a data team. In our benchmarks, we clocked that we think it's about 1200 times faster than asking a data person. Yeah, that's how it usually works. Like in bigger companies, you have business people, they kind of got a new question. and They just send an email to data person, to analytics person. And after that, yeah, they just do the magic. And you have to wait a couple of hours yeah, until they get back to you with a response. That's pretty interesting what you guys are doing, because you kind of noticed that needs way before other people. Because what happened after that, chat GPT hype, a lot of companies actually saw that specific opportunity to integrate chat experience into BI tools. So business people actually don't need to learn SQL. They can just ask a simple question in natural language and get the data and the answer they need straight away without like spending hours sending emails to data people. Yeah, 100%. Well, it's funny because I feel like we've come full circle. Like the original way to do business intelligence before there was any dashboard software for anything, you'd email that database admin or whatever, you'd email someone and ask for the data. You'd have a chat. And then we've had this giant journey, you know, and there's like dashboards and visual exploration tools and all sorts of stuff. That stuff is useful in the right circumstances. We do that stuff too, but we've come all the way around that full circle. And now if you want to get that data, you can ask an AI to chat. So we have a very clear goalpost for us, I suppose, is the pass the cheering test, emulate that chat that was the start of the circle, basically. First of all, I would love to emphasize that you have done a lot of the sexiest things you actually can do. So you did venture capital. <laughs> after that, you got your master's in AI. After that, you got into entrepreneurship. After that, you also did consulting. And right now, you're basically running a successful AI startup. So yeah, congrats on that. And can you walk me a little bit through the moment before you actually decided to start the LASIK. So what were you doing before? What was the transition like? Did you guys have an idea that it's going to be AI product from the very beginning or it kind of evolved over time? Yeah, I would say it was the latter. And it's interesting because when you say, what was the moment? I can actually think of two important moments, right? The first moment was when I made the decision to sort of cross the table and get involved on the operator side with analytics, basically. And as you said, this is after spending a bunch of time as an Excel monkey type analyst, basically. Our funds at my old VC shop were always very thematic based. So like our very first fund was a mobile focused fund in 2010. And at the start of that fund, we were running around talking to LPs, trying to convince them that people were going to use the internet on their phones and things like that. So we always had these themes. The theme that we were looking at at the time I'd left, it was called a big data fund at the time. We called it big data, no one had a good name for it. I was looking at the capabilities that had emerged since I had been an engineer six, seven years earlier. And I couldn't believe how much it changed. So like, yes, I'd expect the hardware would have gotten a lot faster. But that had unlocked all of these new software use cases, right? And like one of my big VC mental maps or whatever is always look for hardware changes to drive software. And we're even seeing that happening with AI now, right? Like we started getting LLMs. We're probably even barely in the time when we have enough hardware capabilities to build those now, right? So the hardware had unlocked all sorts of new ways to understand and interact and have machines that learn from data. It was unlocking the latest new way to interact with computers since the advent of code, really, right? It was like showing a machine a bunch of examples. 
And I got so excited by that. I was like, I don't want to just invest in this. I have to participate. And I didn't even have a really well-formed idea how I was going to participate then, but I knew that I was going to cross the table, move into New York, and we we're going to build AI tools and data tools and take advantage of this new growing platform. That was the first big aha moment. The second aha moment was actually a lot more gradual over the course of our work as data consultants. So my co-founder Paul and I had kind of a rough idea and we sort of understood the shape of the problem when we entered into that sort of consulting business. We didn't have it as refined. By the time we left, it was very refined. And we'd worked with all sorts of different companies from startups to Fortune 500s and everything in between and tried to understand how they use their data. We were positioned exactly between sort of the data team and the end users. So we got to interact with both sides of that and see the sides of that gap and understand where the limitations were, deploy all of the existing tools and all of those things together kind of were like, oh, wow, you can't do this in Tableau. This is crazy. Like, why can't you do this in a BI tool or whatever it is, right? Over that sort of period of realization, that really helped us figure out exactly what we wanted to go after before we kind of pulled the trigger. So that was the second moment when we finally said, all right, you know what? We know enough here. It's time to build. Let's start building some software. That's amazing. And again, it's a long journey, to be honest, but each transition in that journey was really natural and really organic, I would say. So you guys first started doing like venture capital. After that, you during doing venture capital, you saw a new wave and you decided, I need to participate in that. After that, you guys started doing consulting and used consulting to actually identify exact opportunity that it makes sense to follow. So you found the problem basically using your consulting practice. And after that, you started building. So let's jump to the point where you actually guys decided, okay, we have a product. It's time to implement AI into our product. How did it happen? What was the motivation? What exactly you implemented first? All of that. The common theme with everything we talked about and this question is the concept of increasing the surface area of luck, I suppose. Yeah. It's funny because I've lived this. I mean, I'm probably zigzaggier than most, but a lot of startups look like they had this visionary idea and it was like they just flicked the switch and suddenly it was immensely popular. History likes to write that narrative, but in reality, it takes time. The far more common thing is just positioning yourself to take advantage of great opportunities as they come up. That's what startups are actually very, very good at doing. And as a career move, I think startups are great because it gives you the ability to do exactly that. You look at like Instagram as one of the fastest successes ever, right? And like people look at the seven month rise of Instagram after it started to take off virally or whatever, but people forget that there was like years of people just playing around with photo filters before that. People forget the time before when people are just sort of increasing that surface area of luck. That was very much the case with the way that we built Zenlytic. In this case, the luck that occurred is we had a vague notion that AI was going to get better. We didn't really have a good understanding how or when or how fast, but it seemed like it was inevitable, right? Just looking at the trajectory, even now, it looks like the trajectory just continues to go hockey stick growth curve. And we had to utilize the state of the art that was available and keep finding ways to productionize that. We started out with some of the early, early models. I don't know if you've heard of BERT, for instance. So before GPT 3.5, before GPT 3, before even GPT 2, there was a thing called BERT, which is like this open source thing published by Google, which is a very, very basic language model, right? This is back when people were experimenting and taking the vectors and they were saying, you know, king minus man plus woman equals queen and things like that. So it was just early, early research. But that had a spot in Zenlytic and it was probably the most advanced at the time. I don't think that anyone else is doing anything more advanced, but it was still only right 75% of the time, right? You'd ask it about what were my net revenues and it would give you your gross revenues or you say the last month then it would give you the last month of 2022 or whatever. It would get things wrong. So it wasn't perfect. And we had to do a lot of stuff under the hood to make sure it was performant, right? So like it was going back to old school tech. As time evolved, as the models improved, and you know, that really just hit a step change with GPT 3.5 and again with GPT 4, I guess. We've seen those things occur and we just happened to be in an amazing spot to capitalize on that. You know, we already had this BI tool that was natively built 
for working with chat. It happened faster than we expected, by the way. We didn't expect it to be so quick and so soon. So it was great that it did. But when it came out, we were basically just putting the finishing touches on this really thoughtful, self-serve focused BI tool. We had already integrated more difficult tools than that. And it has actually made it easier to integrate, right? So we were able to switch that over in a matter of literally days. And we now have a team that has tremendous amounts of talent in this area. Every single person so far, and I'm sure this will change, but every single person on our language team has like starts with a master's degree in AI from Harvard and things like that. So like we have a lot of talent in building this stuff. And because we were so ready when it happened, that gave us sort of a big head start. So that's what gets me very excited. And that's all because we just had a vague notion. And I don't want to say that we're crazy visionaries that this is going to happen. It was really just a vague notion that you could tell this is going to improve. That seemed obvious. And we happened to be well positioned at the right time. So we just put ourselves in that place, let these positive externalities work. Makes sense. So it seems like for Slack actually worked out really well. Yeah. It's funny because tech is great for that as an industry and AI in general. There's few certainties in this world. I don't know what the stock price of Google is going to be six months from now. And I don't know if General Electric is going to have more or fewer employees than they do six months from now. And you know, There's a lot of things I don't know, but one of the few certainties that we have in this world is that technology monotonically increases, right? And you can't put the genie back in the box. It's always better. And it's almost a certainty. I'd say it's not guaranteed, but empirically it's been true is that the pace of that growth seems to have been accelerated. If you look at the arc of technology, it just seems to keep getting faster and faster. That's one of the things that I'm actually so excited about with AI is like, I've been through a few of these platform shifts now and going back to the mobile shift, for instance, people forget that between the release of the iPhone and the release of the app stores was like, I think multiple years, but it was at least a year. And then it was also a few years after that before the first really successful app started to grow. And like things are measured in months and years in that wave. Things are measured in days and weeks with what's happening right now in LLM. I subscribe to all these AI newsletters. I need to sort of pour over them every day just to see what's happening because things are changing so quickly. And this time is different feeling for me is the pace of AI, which really blows me away. So you guys, you have been building tools using AI for like five, six years at this point. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference? Like what actually changed in the approach of building AI applications? Let's say six years ago and right now. I know the answer actually can change, as you mentioned, like in two weeks. But <laughs> yeah, let's take today and compare it with what happened six years ago. There's competing forces that gets easier in a way, it gets harder in a way. So I'll start with how it gets easier. Have you ever heard of The Bitter Lesson yeah. by Richard Sutton? I think about that a lot. In fact, Richard Sutton is like well-known or renowned in my undergrad university. So The Bitter Lesson, for those listeners that don't know, basically says that over the years, we've always tried to add human structure to these artificial intelligences. So for instance, the early voice recognition apps, there's a whole bunch of like hard-coded stuff in there for recognizing when a sentence ended or whatever. And what we've seen over history is that that gives you a slight bump in the short term, but it slows you down in the long term. Ultimately, the only thing that's really worked with machine learning is just giving more data to the machines and letting them learn more and more things de novo. So the more of a blank slate you give it, and the less you try and hard code into it, the better it is in the long run. More and better data. Yeah, more and better data. Yeah, that's right. That's been remarkably consistent. We've lived that bitter lesson all the time because at the earlier stages of this tech, you have to do a bunch of corrections. To give an example, using LLMs, I mean, like this could be any type of AI. In the early versions of Zenlytic, if you asked a question with a date, we'd actually have to go and have a manual date parser sit alongside the AI-powered date parser. And that becomes challenging from an engineering perspective to figure out if they disagree, which one of those is right. And there's all these extra steps to make sure that the LLM is doing its job, or in this case, whatever it was, the small language model, the language model. And we had all this stuff that you have to do manually. 
Over the generations of tech, a lot of those manual steps are able to disappear. I think there will always be manual steps, and we have a few really important ones. So for example, I would not trust an LM to write SQL in the foreseeable future. So we have special traditional computing stuff that does that alongside the LM. You know, there will always be manual steps, but the number of steps that we have to do to control and regulate and error correct an LM has gone down dramatically. That way it gets much easier. The competing force is that as these models get bigger and more complex, it requires more sort of tooling to deploy and integrate them, right? And as the pace changes this quickly, we're so early in this whole journey of building AIs just collectively, like as an industry, that a lot of that tooling is not very mature yet. So like some of the fastest, earliest successes were the people that got that tooling out the soonest, right? So for example, Langchain was published basically in lockstep with these LLMs as they emerged, and it's already become a very successful business. A lot of things, though, they just don't exist yet. So we've had to build custom test harnesses, right? So for example, whenever we iterate on our AI tech, we have like this giant, giant, giant list of questions that someone would want to ask a BI analyst and a list of answers. It's almost like a unit test. And it's like, okay, does this function do what it says it does? Every single time we touch the algorithm, we need to make sure, all right, is this going to get all these questions right? And like that by itself, it could be at least a gigantic open source project and probably a standalone business, right? Like just building this giant test harness. And there's all sorts of tooling you have to build manually right now because the industry is not mature. When you build something in Python or whatever, and you've got 30 years of libraries and supporting software, you almost always have stuff that's been built that could help you. With the pace of change now, this AI stuff doesn't really have that. So I would say easier and harder. Net, I'd say we're able to accelerate faster and faster as the AI improves. Yeah, and I also probably would mention that because of the pace of changes right now, we also start getting way more newer problems that we didn't actually have two or three years before. For example, what happened right now, I can give an example about LLMs. And you actually mentioned a really interesting trend that is happening. So as you said before, we actually had a lot of manual steps in the process. Right now, we actually can see a clear trend that most of them actually can be combined into an automated process. And again, ChatGPT is like the simplest example of that. So right now, you actually have one model that can answer a bunch of different questions at the same time. Before that, you actually need to have one classifier model. And after that, different LLMs that would answer each type of question specifically. Right now, you have one model for that. So we got basically from two steps to one step. And because of that, you kind of start seeing the problems that can start happening. And you actually need to build separate monitoring tools, for example to actually track the performance of LLMs. Another trend that happened right now, most people can just start serving AI applications using prompts and that's it. They don't need to build really custom AI models. They don't need to do hosting. Because of that, you can see a new trend. Okay, how do we do it in a convenient way? How can we do A-B tests for our prompts? How can we actually manage different prompts we are using right now? It's a completely different problem that we didn't have one year ago. Yeah, 100%. So you shift from literal computing to semantic computing is what I would describe it as, right? And like literal computing, if I search for something in a Python script, this is a lesson we had to learn three years ago, by the way. So this is a great example. Let's just say that you're running a BI tool and someone has a question, hey, show me my conversion rate by marketing channel. If you're doing this in literal computing, you would actually run a search for marketing channel, right? And it's like, all right, do we have marketing channel anywhere in this data? And you'd literally control that. But you might do a hamming distance or something. So it's like, you might look for marketing channels or things that are one typo away from it. But that's all, that's just like closed form search, right? When you move over to the semantic version of that with an AI, you're searching for meaning, right? So in that case, you can't just match it against marketing channel. You have to match it against, you know, slice this by this marketing channel. And the search function for that is you're actually searching for these big vectors. And the vectors for marketing channel and slice by marketing channel are completely different. 
And I think a lot of people are going through that mindset shift now where it's funny, like we're living in their world now, right? Like, so it's like, we have to figure out how to make these inputs outputs work well with LLMs. Right now, it's a rare skill. And I think for anyone starting their career now, it'll be an important skill for an entire career. Makes sense. And one more question I actually have, which is super interesting to me. So you have background in venture capital. Because of that, you should have pretty interesting perspective on what's happening right now in the AI space. So let's even take what you guys are doing right now. It's BI tool. And you know better than me that there are tons of different BI tools right now that kind of use a similar approach. So you just take ChatGPT and you can use text to query your data. So what a startup actually can do to become defensible in that space, what you guys are doing to become defensible in this space, because most tools I know, they just use exactly the same approach. They can modify prompts a little bit, but generally it's exactly the same approach. So you have 10 different companies. They're solving exactly the same problem and they're doing it in a really similar way. And as venture capital investor, like it's a pretty interesting situation to be in. And as a startup founder, it's also a pretty interesting situation to be in. So would be interested in your perspective on that. So I think the short answer is build really great software is the mode of, of most SaaS businesses, for instance, like just being fundamentally better, more popular, easy to use product. The interesting thing about what's happening now is these LLMs and the APIs make it pretty easy to kind of look like you have really great software on the surface area, right? This is like the thin wrapper problem, right? So it's like, are you just a thin wrapper for open AI or whatever? And I think a lot of people who are really excited about this now, they're trying to build the AI-powered superhuman or whatever. The big lesson that I'm trying to say is if you want to build an AI-powered superhuman, first, you have to be able to build superhuman. You know, the AI itself will not make it an amazing product. You also already have to have an amazing wealth out of product. And that's true in most verticals. It's especially true in business intelligence because it's pretty tough to build BI tools. I think you have to be naive when you set it to do it, basically, because otherwise you probably wouldn't. It's a little bit like there's an old VC joke where it's like, never try to build an ERP tool, enterprise resource planning. And BI is a little bit like that, both functionally. And I think it's very true for that rule. You're trying to solve for all these edge cases and data. Data is incredibly messy. Data is incredibly complex. There's a million different ways that people can try and interact with it. At the other side of the equation, especially the self-serve BI tool, you have an incredibly impatient user base. You have to make it seamlessly, effortlessly easy, basically, to access all of this complexity in a way that someone can understand instantly. So it's a lot harder than just building a typical CRUD app or something like that. Just getting all this stuff right. And, you know, I could go for hours about under the hood about how, if you look at our specific case, there's a ton of startups who are, I mentioned, they're trying to get LLMs to write SQL, which I think is a terrible idea. I think the vast majority of people who are starting now don't have that deep data expertise that makes them lack respect for the difficulty of that problem. If you ask an AI to make a picture for you in mid-journey and the color's slightly off, that's probably okay. Or if you ask it to write a blog post and it's got a bad paragraph in it, that's probably okay. If you ask it to do business intelligence for you, you can't be wrong. If it writes SQL and fails silently, like this is public company reporting. This is board reporting. This is financially compliant reporting. This is HIPAA compliant reporting. Whatever it is, it's like you can't trust a non-deterministic solution for business intelligence. And getting an LLM to write SQL is exactly that, right? So in our case, under the hood, we have this very sophisticated thing called a semantic layer, which is more for the data chat. So I won't get into the details, but it's a thing that translates a business-y type question into SQL on a data warehouse. These are very hard to build. There's companies that are dedicated to building this stuff. And we have built our own and tightly coupled it in with the LLM to deliver that experience. 100% reliability. That is a completely different way of doing things than a lot of those companies that kind of look like they're doing a good job on a toy demo. So I guess in our case, yeah, it's like I think of product excellence as got to be great with LLMs, got to be great with data and be able to integrate those using semantic layers and things like that. So that by itself is rarefied space amongst all of those sort of entrants. And then you also have to be able to build a BI tool. 
<laughs> which is a monumental task, right? Like it took us two years of very thoughtful building iteration with design partners to get it to the place where it was when the LLM revolution happened. So all those things together are hard to replicate. And I think that that's what a VC would look for. If I was putting on my VC hat and evaluating us, I'd say, all right, who else has the capability to build this quality of experience? And if the answer is a small number, then you're probably not looking at a thin wrapper. If the answer is a very large number, you're probably looking at a thin API wrapper. Makes sense. It's a really good perspective. Let's say we remove that complexity component. Do you guys still think you have a mode? Because it's a really interesting topic right now. What do your applications actually have a mode? What is mode for these AI applications? So obviously what you have is amazing because not many people actually can do that. You already construct a competition because again, you're not actually competing against hundreds or thousands of other companies. Because as you mentioned, even in case you take a BI tool, it's already difficult to build BI tool. We are not talking about the things you actually need to build on top of that. But let's forget about it for a second and only take a look at the AI mode component. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because the way I think about this is that AI is an enabling technology. It's caused a platform shift, so it's unlocked a lot of new ways for us to do things. But the winners of this new generation are going to behave and act a lot like the winners of the last generation. And it's going to be less about the tech and more about meeting needs and bringing it to market better and like solving those problems better. It feels different this time because AI is such a drastic change in technology, but it's still just the technological foundation. You know, last generation, nobody was saying Facebook has no moat because they're just built on top of PHP. And what if the PHP foundation decides? to build Facebook tomorrow and whatever it is. It's like, you know, Google's just built on React. What if React decides to build a new search engine? People weren't asking that sort of mode question there. They were looking at Facebook and saying, oh, I see. So like you're just out executing everyone. You've got this tremendous social networky product. This is going to be huge. This generation, I think because AI is bigger, people are focusing more on it. But at the end of the day, it's still about solving people's problems. And I think every industry, there's opportunities to solve people's problems in a better way. I think sometimes that'll be handled by incumbents. I think a lot of the times it'll be handled by new entrants that don't have legacy use that anchors it. Just classic innovator's dilemma. But I think in either case, whether it's an existing player or a new player, the winners will be determined by the people that solve the problem holistically, not by the ones that use AI better. Yeah, makes a lot of sense and 100% agree with you on that point. In case you're talking about software, you don't actually get that mode except complexity that you mentioned. Yeah, it can be difficult to build another Facebook for sure, but it's not exactly the same as with AI, let's say, because you kind of can get to that data dominance concept, but it's not obviously applied to each business. But the idea for people who don't know, so imagine you build the first version of your AI software and you start getting users. And you start collecting data from these users and more data you have, but you can leverage that data to train better models and the better models you have, more users events you will have. So imagine, let's say Ryan started his company before everybody else actually saw that potential in applying LLMs to the BI space. Because of that, they already have tons of users data and they already can leverage that data in a way more efficient way that other people who will just start doing it right now or started a couple of months ago, they'll not be able to. And they will get to a better level of the quality and reliability and overall quality of their system because of that, they will get better users and they will get even more data. That's the concept I'm talking about. 
This is something that I've kind of come full circle on. That's exactly why I asked the question, because it's a really tricky question right now in the AI community. Like some people kind of approach it in a way, okay, we do have a moat. Like we collect users data because of that, we will become the best company in the space. Other people, guys, anyway, we will get a new model in half a year. So it doesn't really matter. Like we will all be on the same level. Yeah, it would be interesting in your perspective. Yeah, 100%. So five years ago, in the age of XGBoost, when we were still just playing with tabular machine learning, I guess is what I'd call it, but like whatever that generation was called. Five years ago, I felt like that would have been very true in the abstract. It's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like, okay, yeah, maybe Netflix is going to get a lot more feedback on who likes what shows and then close the loop on that. And that seemed like it was very true. And it was true, actually. The middle of that circle for me was when these foundation models started improving. And it was funny because for a while there, it seemed like the data was going to be the entire internet. <laughs> Right. And it's like, okay, like, I guess then that mode is like, if you can read the whole internet, you've got the data. For a while there, it felt like that was actually less important. And if I was not building an AI business, I'd probably still think that was true today. But since then, I've come full circle again. And I started to realize that we don't store user data and like that. But we have people who send us questions and they ask about you know, how do I ask this and this and this. And like we interact with our users and we're building up tremendous amounts of knowledge and expertise for how people interact with these tools. And we came a lot of the way there as analysts. We had a good inbound hypothesis, but we've developed an excellent intuition and understanding for what people do differently when they're talking to an AI versus a human and things like that. And there's been a lot of surprises in that, you know, like people will talk differently to an AI than sending an email and building up that understanding has essentially ended up with like a data mode for us, right? And it's like, we've classified this and sort of codified this basically in a data-driven or a closed form way. And it's also, we just have a good understanding of it. But yes, that definitely helps does build a better product. So I would say that's the full circle part is just empirically seeing it does give that data advantage. Yeah. And I now strongly believe in that again. Makes sense. Makes all the sense. And probably one of the last questions I actually have is about the existing tooling in the AI space right now. So imagine I want to launch an AI startup. Let's say I'm crazy enough to launch an AI startup right now, but let's say I decide to do that. And I have no idea about the current space of the AI tools. Can you give us high level perspective? What different tools we have in the AI space? What possible challenges they have right now? I know it's a pretty generic question, but would be interested in your perspective. Yeah, for sure. Well, it really depends on the AI that you're trying to build. But let's look at that in these sort of two generations of tools, right? So like, there's an entire field called ML ops, which has been around for five years now or something like that. But these are tools that are used for training AI models. For example, I think of tools like weights and biases. It's a really elegant way to sort of track and understand the loss functions of your neural nets and things like that. So those are valuable tools if you're trying to build de novo AI and a non-negligible part of startups are doing that. They're building custom stuff for this. I think a lot of the people starting AI startups today are standing on the shoulders of giants and they're incorporating and sort of adapting those foundation models. And I think there's a ton of opportunities in that space too. I think it takes about six to 12 months to build a great MVP. And we're seven months into the revolution now. So I have a hunch, but now through till the end of the year and through to the first half of next year, we're going to have the mother of all Cambrian explosions ahead of us as people start to build great application layer AI. So I'm very excited for this. Most of the startups that are building stuff right now will probably do that because these foundation models are pretty flexible and can be adapted to a wide variety of situations. That's where things get really sparse, I suppose. The tooling is quite new there. You've got a lot of fundamental engineering type tools. So I think the GOAT right now is Langchain, for instance, AI agent paradigm. A lot of startups use that as the foundation. 
And then there's emerging things. There's like, I've heard rumors about these various test harnesses and stuff like that. There's a tool called Rails, for instance, that helps you put an LLM on guardrails. And there's a lot of tooling out there, but that is a very fundamentally different shape, I suppose. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. But I would mention that we can check the tooling in probably like a couple of months and it will significantly change anyway. Even right now, we can use Langchain, even though it got a lot of traction, got a lot of popularity. You still can see new framework in a couple of months, in a couple of weeks that people will start using because the space is so new that you cannot even talk right now about established players at this point. It's just too new to talk about it. 100%. Exciting space, changing rapidly, but I don't know who the winners and who the losers and who the most useful ones are going to be yet even. Okay, yeah, makes sense. And really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Again, really amazing perspective. I really like perspective from venture capital side and also from a builder side. Been an amazing conversation. Really appreciate you and would love to have a conversation one more time. Sounds great. Thanks. Cheers. The Unleashing AI podcast is brought to you by Unleashing AI. To find out more about Unleashing AI and how innovative, custom-built AI can help your business, visit unleashing.ai. Also, make sure to search for Unleashing AI in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Unleashing AI, thank you for listening.